0: Welcome to the Podcast. I am your host Shane Hazen. Coming up this week, friend of the podcast and friend of myself, uh, Tyler Savage is back and we we're discussing two legendary screenplay adaptations of the James Dickey novel To the White Sea. First by David and Janet Peoples, the second by the Coen brothers. Uh, but first off, what I watched this week, uh, I finally caught her up to Smooth Talk, which uh, was released on Criterion back in February after a big restoration in a I guess this movie won the Sundance Award back in 1985 uh, before the big Sundance revival. It's directed by Joyce Chopra, and it's also uh, has a musica- musical director, James Taylor, from last week's episode on Tulane Blacktop. Real quickly, correction, I think last week I said Tulane Blacktop was James Taylor's only acting role. I believe it's his only lead performance. He's done another... parts often playing himself most notably in funny people but this has this amazing uh, early performance by Laura Dern and it's based off the Joyce Carol Oates short story where are you going where have you been which is uh, what her most famous or most anthologized short story and if you haven't seen this I'm gonna try to keep to my spoilers vague as I can because this involves the ending I'll, I'll keep it vague the short story has a very famous ending, and knowing that ending, I wasn't familiar, I, I knew what the ending was. I, re- I read the short story after seeing the movie, and the movie has this it does a really interesting job of fleshing out the family and the other characters. But, um, the main moment is the end. And it involves Treat Williams. And I gotta say, because of I was assuming that the movie was going to end the short stories ending, Treat Williams has one of the most amazing performances of his career I'd ever seen. It. I, I can't believe no one like no one ever everyone talks Prince of the City, but no one ever talks to this. So there's a tension because you're expecting the short story ending and the movie does include technically the short stories ending it goes into it's 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 an 80s ending i'll say that much and there's i i'm kind of weirded out because it doesn't feel like the movie necessarily lost its nerve just because the scenes with treat williams had that much tension to it so i i i mean did the movie have its cake and eat it too um apologize if I wasn't subtle enough and this was a bad bad spoiler opening but one of my uh, more interesting reads of the week was I got through Rachel Kushner's new uh, essay collection the Hard crowd and it contains a bunch of it contains a bunch of movie stuff if you're familiar with her any of her novels the flamethrower has this ongoing I don't know if you call it a plot line but the movie Barbara Loden's movie Wanda makes an appearance in the novel and this would be before as far as I know, Wanda had regained its more recent revival before you know, it was put out on Criterion or before You Must Remember This, did the episode on it. I, I'm, it might have even been out of print. And she does this trick in Flamethrowers where she keeps mentioning seeing Wanda without describing that you're seeing Wanda. So it's this unseen, mo- unnamed movie. And in this essay collection, amongst other film references, there's a lot of Godard in it. There's an essay on the French writer uh, Marguerite Duras, and who, novelist and playwright, but who most famously in film wrote Hiroshima Mon Amour. And this is relevant for this week because late in the conversation with me and Tyler, we start to get into the concept of the screenplay format and what it's good for. And I was thinking about what what I had read of Marguerite Duras's screenplay for Hiroshima and Moore, and I want to read a part of her preface. Um, Readers should not be surprised that Renee, Alan Renee's pictorial contribution is practically never described in this work. My role is limited to describing these elements from which Renee made his films. And then later in the, the preface, as I hand the book over for publication, I greatly regret that it does not include the account of the almost daily conversations between Renee and myself G. Jarlad and myself, and all three of us together. Now, that the published version of the screenplay does contain dialogue, but it, it's, so it's not strictly like one of those completely prose-style screenplays, but Patricia Montemore is a v- innovatively famous editorial movie, nonlinear editorial movie, and if you've ever tried to see a nonlinear movie in normal screenplay format, it's pretty incoherent. It's really hard to read. And part of our, the conversation Tyler and I start to go down a little is this idea that to do something really cinematic. I, I mean, I, I just flat out say in the conversation, I fucking hate the normal screenplay format. And part of the reason I just hate this format is I think it's a large source of as to why film has too many linger elements of the stage, and all too frequently, for my taste, doesn't embrace the intrinsic attributes it has by itself, like aspects like the editorial minded, which obviously. going to interest me but also keep it ungrounded from physicality and time the um, the reason movies are so tv on the radio where actors are just telling you what you're seeing or telling you what to think from what the writer has written to them and they they always work on one level they don't seem to really truly engage the senses the current format really sets, sets sets you up for this now, if you've read Mark Norman's book on the history of screenwriting, What Happens Next, the format was primarily invented by Thomas Inch, who was in competition with D.W. Griffith. It's not artistic competition, but financial competition. And the book attributes him with the creation of the studio assembly line. Uh, the one page equals one minute of screen time ratio, and the idea that a story has to be imagined totally and planned out before filming. And Tyler and I kind of discuss some modern directors who are notable for bucking the screenplay format. The ones we didn't discuss, but the major ones right now, would be someone like Wong Kar-wai. But also recently this week, for some reason, I jumped back in. uh, I rewatched Roma, which I think for parts of it was done without a script. And whenever there's no script, it's inherently going to favor the director. And it's also going to be really expensive, which was why Inch made a name with the format and saved money on the format but when we look at directors who do something sometimes intrinsically cinematic stuff we i personally sometimes see the level of early cinema or silent cinema coming from them and i think that this script format old or using a format that's something just like you know a uh, prose or just just a synopsis or something that's not Interior, exterior, actors' lines, and you're you're discouraged from having too much description, and also don't describe exactly a editorial pattern or any type of filmic pattern, things like that. It seems like it's more for the financier and the agents, and not for the actual betterment blueprint. And it is what it is. It's show business, you know, is a business, and I hate that argument, but whatever. It's it still still applies. Anyway. We're discussing an adaptation of James Dickey, who, his final novel, a very cinematic novel, that that begrudged two, or made two very cinematic screenplays. And many people, including uh, Roger Deakins, recently declared that the Coen brothers to the White Sea was their best script. And it's not a stretch to say it would have made one of their best movies. And it was going to be one of the most expensive movies, but it also is probably never going to get made. And this is a movie that goes long, or their version especially goes long swaths without dialogue. And I got to, my personal theory is that that is the reason why this movie, a big part of the reason why this movie will never see light of the day. So you got to figure if the format's depriving us of what could be the best Coen Brothers movie, maybe we should rethink some the, the omnipresence of the format, or the fact that going outside the format is so rarely accepted. And with that, here's me and Tyler discussing the two adaptations of To the White Sea by David and Janet Peoples and Ethan and Joel Cohen.
1: Well, dude, thank you for sending these over. I mean, th- this is... I, You know, I know a little bit about Dickie, obviously, but, like, had... And I'd heard about this script because of the Coens, because I think that this... Uh-huh. I'd heard about it vaguely as this, like, almost dialogue-empty script of theirs that they had been trying to make. But beyond that, right. I really didn't know much about it. And what a crazy fucking wild-ass story. And it's so harrowing, and it's, like, pure you know, survival man mode. Um,
0: So jumping in, what was your order? What did you, what order did you read them in? My
1: order was the people's version first and then the Cohen version.
0: I did the same. I thought basically, well, all things being equal, I probably, I don't know if I wanted to read the novel first because I I wanted to. I read maybe
1: like a quarter of it or like a fifth of it. Like I did read maybe the first 30 or 40 pages because I just wanted to get a sense of how, verbatim
0: you read way more than i did i I skipped around
1: yeah i mean i kind of like this morning that was actually part of the reason i said would give me another 15 minutes as i kind of wanted to just read a few more pages just to get a sense because there was some very significant differences um and also i think one part of our talk too that we should make time for is just the formatting of these two scripts is very very interesting
0: (laughs) I got a feeling it's not just going to be a part of the talk. I feel like it's going to be. <laughs> it might be
1: the centerpiece of it. Yeah.
0: Um, okay. Uh, you read the the D- David and Janet Peoples. Like he wrote, uh, David Peoples as a career. He wrote. I first came across him just because of Blade Runner, and mm-hmm. and um, and and I, he most famously, he he got some cachet for writing Unforgiven. Yep. Um which was supposedly like this big one of his first scripts he wrote when he came to LA in 76, but and Eastwood pulled it off a pile from, you know, from our other episode talking about stories about Eastwood pulling random scripts off a pile. And then after that point, I guess he was still in demand and I'm not sure where the delineation comes between him writing scripts by himself and with his wife, but he wrote 12 monkeys with his wife Mm -hmm. and this, he wrote with his wife
1: was 12 monkeys an adaptation too.
0: Yeah, uh, Le Jete. It's um, the Chris Marker movie, but it's also this weird thing where, like, in theory, it follows the story of Le Jete, but like, it's it has a vibe of an original just because the, I mean, you you take the idea that you a person from the future trying to save the future by going to the past and correcting something witnesses his own death, like they take that and then run with it and right. make Terry Gilliam do stuff with it, but this um. I think what's fascinating is uh, To The White Sea came out in 93, so this would have followed the whole normal, like, hot book, maybe maybe give a year or two, but this is, like, a hot book. Let's get someone to ad- adapt it. And this is like the first adaptation that comes out from the book pretty s- soon after it was published, relatively. It's three years after it was published.
1: Right, yeah. So this, they were 96 and then the Coens was 98. That was also interesting seeing, you know, s- just seeing that timeline. Um, well, did
0: you compare, the th- the del- the other point I thought of, did you comp- try to figure out where Save and Private Ryan came in between before <laughs> and after these adaptations?
1: Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I didn't think about it so much in terms of specifically the before and after, but I was like, yeah, this timeline is very clear. I mean, also it was interesting because last time we spoke, we were talking about kind of early 90s cinema and like how many things were changing at that period. So Mm. I, I think that a big part of it was probably how much of an appetite is there for this type of story. Because in a weird way, you know, there is, this is a little bit more of a throwback. It might have been easier to make this movie in the in the late 80s, early 90s. Like maybe, maybe there was something about it that was slightly past because this oh. kind of, there's, and I love it, but there's something about him, he is almost like more of a 70s or 80s kind of strong, silent type movie icon than maybe he is... Um, something that was suited for the late '90s. I don't know. There's and now, I mean, just you know, I think it would be hard to get this movie made now because we're in such a. It'd be impossible. Oh my god!
0: This, <laughs> well, because so this movie is still in development. It was it's bought by um, Warner Brothers. Uh, do you are you familiar with Vertigo and Roy Lee?
1: Yeah, I know Roy Lee. I mean, I know of him. Yeah,
0: they ha- they're the ones that have this in development and they're scrapping everything. But I mean, they're and, and based on his other movies, which I mean, we're talking about things like um, he did the current iteration of Stephen King's. It. I mean, he's he's got a weird list. I think like it's that weird mingling of the studios where I'm not sure whether with like he's got a, he's got an EP credit on Godzilla vs Kong. He's on the Lego movies, a stand miniseries. Like, but it goes all the way back to the Grudge. And like, I don't know. Okay, well, well, the fascinating thing is, I in particular, especially in this very, very current climate, would want to know what um, Asian Americans think about this movie being released right now well right Ex-
1: exactly i mean i was just gonna say with the anti-asian sentiment issues we've been dealing with and the horrifying things we've been right. hearing about happening publicly i mean i think this would be almost an irresponsible uh you know well just also <laughs> the appetite, yeah
0: just a general appetite for a movie about world war ii and the pacific campaign in general like it's not even like this this the story happened yeah regard
1: regardless of this story in particular but even making anything about the pacific theater of world war ii right now yeah. would be tricky and i was like in the people's version i literally had like a little tally i was going through there's about i think 12 to 14 close quarter murders of japanese people and some of them are children some of them are women yeah <laughs>
0: some yeah. of them are, are, are el-
1: some of them are elderly some of them are handicapped some of them are handicapped elderly people like he's he's really going for it to this
0: how much of this do you think is him like uh jumping off of like everyone might've been telling him that he's just had his Oscar success, although his Oscar success is now what, four years in the past, but mm-hmm. you know, off a of very revisionist, violent, how much of them is telling him like you're the you're our violence guy you're our uh, hard ass?
1: I think you're totally right. I mean, I think that that's there is like this kind of harsh machismo like thing to this where it's it's almost like and that's what I meant about the period where this might have been an easier movie to get made in the in the late eighties or right at the beginning of the nineties because I think sentiments just kind of changed a little bit. There's almost a little bit of. Rambo in here I mean there's like a little there's just like this this one isolated tough guy doing any you know surviving by any means necessary and obviously you know all the background of him in Alaska and his his upbringing and his connection to nature and animal life make it something more than just you know a pure war story you know there's something about about that that's really interesting but I do wonder if maybe that kind of um the era of that type of male hero might've been kind of closing by the time they were trying to develop this movie.
0: Well, it's funny you mentioned Rambo Rambo's, I think of really astute observation. I was thinking of more into the, um, we'll get into the Cohen stuff later, but the, the, um, this, I don't want to describe it. This philosophical idea of, uh, a man still being an animal, being involved with nature and inherently a killer. And so I kept thinking of poetic interpretations of that, like Cormac McCarthy, which is going to be a big part of mm-hmm. the Coen brothers. And, um, but also like, um, Dickey, like, okay, we should go into some of the, uh, James Dickey, which you, you said you sounded familiar with him. I, I own his, I own his three novels, but I am wholly unfamiliar with them. I read some of to the white sea, um, what I find fascinating is he comes from a great tradition I love of prose novelists who came from poetry, but he mainly made his yeah. name as a poetry. He was the 1966 U.S. Poet Laureate. He, I
1: saw that when I looked it up. I'm and then he was also a poetry t- uh, professor as well, right? Oh,
0: yeah, yeah. He taught at a lot of different places. But like he, I, I watched this really cool YouTube video of him doing a uh, poem he wrote for Life magazine for the moon landing that ABC mm. News then redid which was intense and this was be 3 years before his first big novel success which was for it helps out cinematically deliverance yeah and his second novel i have trouble pronouncing and he only wrote 3 novels the to the white sea is is the third one um he also did the poem at Jimmy Carter's inauguration
1: oh that's cool i didn't know that yeah well it's interesting too he also drank himself to death <laughs> which um You know, is sad but somehow fitting. You know, for a guy who spends his career writing about these, you know, sort of men in isolation and these incredibly like harsh kind of things. And you know, I I mean, with both Deliverance and it's interesting too, and why David Webb Peoples might have been it. There's a bit of an overlap with Unforgiven there with the Mm. David Webb Peoples of it all in Mm -hmm. terms of like men being an island and holding in all of these, you know, all of these struggles and things and never saying it and sort of like. Like you know, yeah, I'm Will William Money, the women of you know the killer of women and children. But today I'm here to kill you, you know, Sheriff Bob or whatever the hell it is. Like that, there's something about violence being a necessary part of a man's life and a component that is somehow tied in him because of our evolution, our connection to nature. And it's about making people like. So that's where I think maybe he was a very logical, or him and his wife were very logical writers to hire for this
0: hmm what Janet Peoples would have brought to this a story about like men keeping quiet and then making them more violent that's that's a that's an interesting take too
1: well it's kind of a meditation on violence I mean then you think also of how depraved deliverance gets and like you said right. you know there was probably a bit of a thing after the success of deliverance being like oh well I'm going to continue down this path of you know writing quite difficult stories
0: yeah for for both for dicky similar to the way people's would have been you know one weird thought i had was more in the people's version definitely than the cohen's brother just because there's this especially in the people's uh version which by the way do we need to do a plot synopsis of this like i mean
1: we can i mean it's it's very i mean it's pretty simple it's a i mean very it's, simple it's,
0: setup very simple setup
1: yeah, so, okay, so it's it's Pacific Theater, uh, late in World War II, we meet a, a a gunner for the Air Force named Muldrow, and they're going out on one of their final missions before the bombing of Tokyo, and what's going to be sort of the end of the Pacific Theater, and, um, you know, there there is, uh, you know, the, the, the plane is attacked, then it goes down, he's got a parachute out of it, and the majority of the movie is spent with him trying to reach a secluded island um basically in Japan, as part of an attempt to get back to the u s and so he's, he's from, from Alaska yeah, and he 's trying Alaska. to get from this island in Japan to Alaska, but the vast majority of the story is spent in true survival mode as he's crossing Japan um on his way, trying to get home basically. The,
0: one of the weirding to see thought of uh, mainly in the people 's version i don 't know if this is in the book, but there's this idea presented from his history in Alaska that like he was violent before the war. And I thought of the comic book creator, Garth Ennis, who's really popular right now because he's the creator of the boys and his run on the Punisher, which is also another infamously popular character right now for a lot of the blue lives matters are, are pushing. Um, sure. Gar- Garth Enos treated, um, uh, um, Frank Castle, the Punisher character, his run is, 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 to me, the definitive Punisher run. And one of the fundamental things he did was the Punisher's origin story was he's a Vietnam vet who came home and his family was killed by mobsters. And then he decided he was going to start killing criminals and he was an antihero in Marvel Comics. Garthina's take on it was that this man was a psychotic killer. One, before he got to Vietnam, then when he got to Vietnam, he did well in Vietnam. And then when he went home, he was still a psychotic killer who just suddenly doesn't have a venue to kill people anymore. And when his family is killed, he suddenly has a quote unquote revenge excuse to kill people more again. And moldro kind of reminds me of that, where like he was a killer before the war and the war just gave him venue for this.
1: Absolutely. It almost I mean it remind that's such like a fun trope, right? I mean that you know people that are displaced after and kind of you know eat. also what I liked in it, it to me it was more present in in the people's version than in the Cohen's version is his relationship with his father as as yeah, that guy yeah. you know as him kind of being, you know, and his father being a hunter and kind of, you know, the mystery of what happened in the father's life. But again, this idea that there's this inherent violence that we're capable of and just to riff on that for 2 seconds, I think that we still, Still have that in our movie culture and in our, you know, all around us. Like you're referencing the Punisher, mm-hmm. um, like look at John Wick, or I just went and saw Nobody, right? But it's been turned into this more cartoony kind of, you know, killing goons and and you know Russians and evil Chinese and, you know, different types of international gangsters, it's been taken out of the realm of, you know, really something like this, where, I mean, Christ, in the Cohen brothers version, he's slitting a dog open from navel to neck in the first 10 minutes of the movie. Hmm. Like, I mean, there, it's very much about the grounded violence of survival and living as an animal you know what I mean? Or living yeah. amongst amongst you know, living in nature as just another animal as part of the ecosystem. Mm-hmm.
0: I'm as keen to talk about the uh, possibility that humanity, like I still like to think of us as dumb animals in general, but in terms of violence, like I like to differentiate between what we personally in our day to day do with violence versus what we see in movie violence and movie violence seems there's something about violence is so inherently cinematic that like there's a reason it's perpetuated on screen more than our real lives and violence in our real lives tend to be like exaggerated, rare, you know, but at the same time, like,
1: And slower too, you know, like when Rylance happens to realize it feels like it's this kind of, you know, uh very shocking thing versus the way that we relate to it in film is made to be sexy and appealing yeah, and yeah. you know have rhythm to it. And I like I was just watching a couple I finally caught up on Craig Zoller's last couple movies, you know, Attack on So Brawl on Cellblock 99 and oh yeah and you know dragged across concrete. And I'm like, I fucking love this way of doing violence because what it is is it's like, no, that punch really hurt. No, when you stab me in my gut I'm going to be wounded. I'm not going to, like, you know, hit you with a roundhouse kick and fly up onto the ceiling and go over your head. It's like you actually feel the impact of the violence in the people's bodies.
0: It's very distinctly unpleasant on purpose. Um, Yes. I want to – you mentioned format. Let's start to dive into the difference between the formats. Um, People's – there's something – Well for on a basic level, you mentioned earlier the Coens famously, this is their script that was mostly a silent movie or a movie without giant chunks of dialogue. And people's I was kinda surprised at how much based off I guess off the book, which you read more of, he they just naturally had to not have long sections without dialogue just because he's silently going through Japan north through Japan. And um, but at the same time the People's script, okay, one basic thing I found fascinating, and I'm curious what you, you think of it in a format uh, situation, exclamation marks. There are so many exclamation marks in the People's version.
1: Yes, and it's funny, too, because a lot of them are also reserved for just saying, it's Muldrow, exclamation <laughs> point. You know what I mean? Like where he's, like, pretending to be, you know, he's pretending to be a Japanese person, you know, hiding in different in different ways, disguising himself. And there is a lot of, like... You know, what's that object hidden in the snow? It's Muldrow. But it's fun, too. I mean, I think that the thing is also, in addition to the exclamations, there's a tremendous amount of caps. There's a lot of caps through, throughout everything. And I and I actually really, because I've, I've read Unforgiven and Blade Runner. And uh-huh. I like the way, I really just like his style. I think it's cool. I think it's unique. And I think it's inherently visual, the way he writes. But yet he doesn't do a lot of camera direction per se he's described he's very descriptive of images but it's like less traditional camera direction
0: i guess I, I i mean well for starters people's is is obviously an amazing uh screenwriter who got most of his scripts made which is to a lot of screenwriters is the ultimate test of whether you're a good screenwriter or not but especially coming out to Old monkeys I had the feeling that this is probably going to get made and What I found fascinating, there was a ton of angle-ons. Yes. There there were a lot of those, but uh, I mean, I I agree with you. He he was very visual, very pithy, but I think the unfortunate thing is when you compare and contrast uh, David Peoples, who still was a really hard-ass screenwriter of integrity, to the Coen brothers, and you see an unmade Coen brothers movie, it's going to lack in comparison even though it's still an impressive script even as an adaptation of a great novel i assume a great novel
1: yeah i mean you know i agree i mean i i agree and disagree because i mean i do think that there is stuff in the people's version that i kind of preferred that i did like i mean i i
0: uh, what kind of stuff i I had one specific one but i want to hear more well yeah
1: i i think for me the thing is like even in the first uh, really in the setup, like everything going up through the the um, the crash of the plane, he, they do a he he and his uh, the people script does a lot more of weaving in. Uh, who Muldrow is and his experiences. And alas, uh, the the flashbacks,
0: he's more, he's more heavy on the flashbacks.
1: He's much more heavy on the flashbacks. And it's cool. Like what I love in the Coen's thing though, right? Is that it starts the very first image is with something that's obscure coming at us at camera. And then we realize it's a bird. And then the bird passes screen as the, um, you know, B-29 bomber comes into view or whatever. So it was this very nice way of they're like, we're nodding to nature, we're in a nod to the hawk and that element that's going to come in later, but we're not going to do a big... Flashback.
0: I think in both scripts, the last image is a bird too. Against the exactly,
1: That's what I mean. Yeah. The hawk is caught. I mean, basically I think the end of the, you know, the end of the story is, I mean, essentially him dying, you know, and being gunned down by Japanese soldiers in the people's version, he's getting gunned down in the Cohen's version. He's getting stabbed. Uh, I mean, he's getting, you know, killed with a samurai sword essentially, but in both versions, you get the sense that his spirit is sort of lifting off through this hawk that is flying through the snow over them as this moment's happening, which I think is, wonderful and beautiful but also i liked you know um just i guess i liked that a little bit more throughout uh in in the people's version where there was like this sense of his connection to how he would have a lot of these skill sets and why he is almost very comfortable in this horrible situation that he's in you know he's he's built for it you know um but overall i agree i mean i think with the cohen's thing there is you know there's just more of uh a feeling for the world of the movie. It's a little less a little less dry The the people's version can be a little bit just it's descriptive and it's moment-to-moment moment, But it doesn't have as clear of a point of view Well,
0: one other practical thing that I think is a is not just is, is a common thing with uh, most screenwriters have to deal with that the Coens don't very, or very rarely do they not have to deal with is people's is writing for someone else to direct the Coens are writing for themselves to direct.
1: Exactly, and you can feel that. You can feel that difference because there is such a clear vision in the Coens' version. That, um, but in in a way, as part of just like a writing a, a writing exercise, I really enjoyed both. You know, and back to the formatting of it all, they both did so many things that I was just intrigued by and might steal.
0: <laughs> do you have what, what, any examples you want to mention Or do you want to keep these in, in shop? No, I mean, no,
1: I love I love Like with the Coen's version, for example I love how once they establish a voice They'll carry it through Without even using the slug of the character Oh, anymore.
0: You, you, that's a funny one I tried that a few years ago And it's, I, well, because what I tried to it, do It'll it,
1: backfire, it
0: could backfire Oh, yeah. it backfired quickly And the thing is, like, <laughs> I even tried to be helpful Where, I think I noticed they did was they put the the character slug and then they'd stop giving the character slug at the voice. They mainly did with voiceover. But what I would do was I would just, cause you save a line. And so I would put it at the top of every page. Whenever, if if it goes over a page uh, turn, you then put the slug then at the top of the page. Still not. it still hurt. Still. (laughs)
1: Yeah. It's, it's also weird too. I mean, i mean both of these scripts, like we were saying at the beginning of this are very, very action heavy. So there'll be these stretches of 10, literally 10 12 pages where there's not a single line of dialogue and it's interesting to see i i don't know i mean really both of them are very imagistically written scripts yeah you know i mean they 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 they, and they kind of they have to be um i think that the the cohen's is probably a little less dense of a read but they're they're both pretty dense i mean there's no doubt about it
0: I should okay. I should go into my history right now and admit that I actually finished the. the I was first came aware of the Cohen's draft, and it's been available for going on like I don't know the 15, 17 years. It's been available for a while. I've had it forever. Sure. Uh, I just finished reading it for the first time today.
1: Nice. I did. I did too. I mean, I fit I got. I caught up on most of it, but that's why I needed the extra fifteen minutes. <laughs> okay. I was, I was, I was it, reading the end.
0: It. Uh, years ago years ago i tried reading it and i was told it was really popular in the ain't it cool circles um and there was that period where it was, was going to get made it was gonna oh but did with moldrew did you hear um do you hear brad pitt's voice throughout this because that's who the Coens cast in them
1: i didn't but that makes perfect sense i mean that that's who been. they cast in the timeline. Time. Yeah.
0: Yeah, this script, the Coen's version recently was mentioned on Roger Deakins, uh, uh, or Team Deakins, Roger and James Deakins' podcast, as uh, he thinks it's the best Coen Brothers script, and um, the Coen's have pretty much abandoned it, because in, like, early... It was supposed to be their movie after Big Lebowski, before uh, Other, I think. Imagine that. Be,
1: yeah, that would be wild. It was
0: going to be an $80 million movie then. Yeah. And... Like they the the quote they have is don't set a movie in Tokyo during the firebombing unless you have lots of money for that and they feel bad because like supposedly Brad Pitt keeps bringing it up to them and like they just they you know they're not going to make it. I knew this was an amazing script, but then when you get to this description without dialogue, it's just hard to put in your head cinematically what what's there's just a more it's not like you're reading pages and pages of prose description there's and and to be fair prose script prose description can sometimes be that hard but like with screenwriting you just find yourself going through these long stretches like wait where am i visually uh cinema geographically what's happening here who what, what was that key moment there especially because movies scripts are written so tightly visually like because mm-hmm. they they're trying to compress sp- space they're trying to get across a lot of visual information air screenwriting p- format is supposed to give you that feel of what a movie is like as it doles out information um you don't want to be too detailed but at the same time the form the format itself is just constantly lends itself to like this superficial read um uh, screen screenplays are read by people who don't like reading typically and <laughs>
1: yes just- agreed
0: I mean, and it, so what ended up happening was I started this journey where, like, I started reading a bunch of more Coen Brothers screenplays after I'd watched the movie. Like, the main one I did that was a great read was Miller's Crossing, which I watched Miller's Crossing and then reread that, and it was immaculate. And then, if, like, oh, two or three years later, after my attempts at reading this, No Country for Old Men comes out, and that seems to be the closest that a distillation of what they would have done with To the White Sea, where, like, you have these very procedural sequences of how a character does something to get from point A to point B with doing something. You think of things like uh, Llewellyn when he first discovers the uh, drugs or whenever he's trying to hide uh, the suitcase in the hotel stuff. And you think of like, it's a very quiet, dialogue-free scene of a character doing something that's very intensively fun to watch on screen. But when you describe it, it, it's probably easy to be glaze over and bored. Like, I don't know what's
1: happening there. No, but you're right. Like, the Llewellyn, especially that opening, the introduction to Llewellyn and him discovering the, you know, the massacre and the drugs. I mean, like, that... I I agree, and even when I was reading this, I was like, oh, they never made this because they made No Country for Old Men.
0: You you, you did distinctly have that. I, I,
1: I, I very much had that thought because it's also... You know, I mean, and also, you know, no country so notorious for having almost zero music in it. Other than that, like rumble after Llewellyn gets killed, I think there's like a rumble sound or something that comes in. But literally, there's no, there's no score like from the vast majority. I just
0: recently, I there was a, uh, de- I mean, I've been a big uh, lover of the Team Deacons podcast, and they talked about apparently there's a bunch of cues in the movie. But the the thing they said specifically was they told Carter Burwell the Coens did was. You have to come out – you have to go in from wind and come out into wind.
1: Right, right. Yeah, yeah. so whatever they're in there, they're so subtle and they're just these yeah. little, little subtle accents. But <laughs> but yeah, and there is also, again, obviously like the, the Cormac reference uh, even to like Dickie, there is a lot of like, you know, tough men going it alone – you know what I mean? Like, they're, they're, they're already, obviously, once Llewellyn has to kind of leave his wife in an attempt, a failed attempt to try to save her, you know, it's very much kind of this this man on the run kind of thing, which obviously isn't the same as, you know, 1945, you know, Japan, but there is some comparison to be made between those two, and I feel like whatever they were after creatively, that itch got somewhat scratched doing the McCarthy adaptation if they weren't able to do the $100 million World War II movie. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. I think one key difference for me between the two scripts is this. There's something about um, the the Coen brothers. You feel like you're watching a Coen brothers movie. You you get their worldview. You get the violence. You get the absurdity, all this stuff. But whenever you read the People's version, you get someone who's trying to adapt um, uh, a very poetic, hard-ass book and making it cinematic. And People's relies on... There seems like there's a lot of for, this isn't the best term for it, but something along the lines of reversals, like where it's like mm. like the, like you had to cinematically set something this is what we think is going to happen and and uh and set like stays in the crane quiet for a day, which you know that was one another significant change between the two versions right. But, Um, I wanted to ask you, I've been thinking a lot about this in screenwriting, uh, this reversals being this idea that you set an audience expectation up and then you take it away from them. Are you familiar with uh, this Shane Black thing he calls the haystack game?
1: No. What's that? What's he call it?
0: Okay. There's a version of it that actually played out in Iron Man three, but, um, I'm not going to give you the exact quote, but the idea is like Shane Black talks about this way of like you constantly have reversals. So you say a guy falls off a plane. The audience says, oh no, that's bad. And the filmmaker says, no, that's good because he had a parachute. Then The audience says, well, that's good. And then the filmmaker says, no, that's bad because the parachute didn't open. Right. And it goes, oh no, that's terrible. And, uh, and then the filmmaker says, no, it's okay, because he had a reserve shoot. Oh, no, yeah. that's good. The reserve shoot didn't open either. Oh, no, that's bad. No, it's okay, because he sees a haystack right underneath. Oh, no, that's, well, that's good. No, because there's a pitchfork, and then he <laughs> the, out of the haystack. That's like, why oh, it's, it's the good. haystack. And boy. then he misses the haystack, yeah.
1: No, it, no, that's it. And you're right. This whole movie, in a way, is an exercise in that. <laughs> like, this entire, because, and then Muldrow, you know, Sorry to ruin it, doesn't make it out of this movie. So it, But he dies close to home, closer to home than he ever thought he would be. You know what I mean? And kind of has this peace with the, the ancient man that he, he lives with. Um is that
0: the is that the success of the movie because I remember thinking structurally this movie just tends to have like a generalized like I won't call it a problem but it's just something that's notable that like most of the tension in this movie is about him like not getting killed and he gets closer <laughs> to his destination and then gets killed like
1: Exactly I mean that's wh- that that's where I feel like there is this again the meditation on on the violence and there's something that's hard to articulate but is in there you know like with the dad you know with again with his father like in the people's version right um I can't remember like in the people's it's really not clear clear why the father moved them to Alaska and had this life you know what I mean and there is something about the the being solitary and you almost got the sense that Muldrow would have been happy to just die with that ancient man in oh, Japan yeah. without ever making it back to to Alaska. So there is something about...
0: Well, yeah. I was going to say he, he would have been happy to stay in Alaska his whole life. Did you see anything in the book right. to explain anything more uh, detail on the father?
1: No, I didn't get to anything that got me any more detail on the father. And I have a feeling that they don't give you that answer in the book either. Because I think that, that there, there's something there's something about that. It is like... I, strong silent type is not the right thing. But, you know, somebody, again, like men who were islands of of you know solitude and secret and you're never going to quite penetrate you know what's going on with them like that's again the 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 Llewellyn comparison to in in no country right you don't get anything on his backstory we don't understand why he has any skill set that he has we don't get he's just a man on a mission
0: isn't he a Vietnam vet He's a vet. Way?
1: Yeah, you get that nod that he's a vet, but you just know tremendously little about him is what I'm mm-hmm. saying. You know, but it's it's very much. Uh, yeah, I don't know. He's he's a no, no, no,
0: no. It's, um, the one thing I missed from the people's draft that I don't remember in the Cohen Brothers draft was the American Buddhist monk.
1: That was great. I mean, I thought that was—and also, in the People's Draft, it's handled quite efficiently. You know, he's yeah. brought into this monastery. He's he's kind of made to feel very comfortable, and then immediately he's getting the shit kicked out of him by Japanese soldiers. And, um, you know, that's—there's also, like, again, that's back to your haystack thing, right? It's like, oh, my God, he landed at a monastery, and there's Americans here. He's going to be fine. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh And that doesn't end up being the case. And it's actually when he's with the the old Japanese man at the end that he's the most safe. So I don't know. It was, you know... I, I that is a beat that I missed and I really loved in, in in the people's version
0: yeah I mean like I know the Coen's are growing tight but like they could it feels like they could have run with it um, I mean th-
1: yeah that's a, that's one thing to note too I mean right there's like the Coen's version is almost 20 pages shorter I think or something 50, 15 pages shorter than the people's version too yeah and and yet it has you know to your point about like we were talking about why it's probably you know the better of the two versions because it's got a more clear vision and point of view it's also got a lot more of the dialogue from the book in it which is interesting it's got like more of these big 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 chunks of like two pages of this colonel's monologue or whatever and where you get some of that in the people's version in the cohen version they'll literally let a lot of that stuff just live as it was in the original text
0: well, you know what I found fascinating in both instances where you have like the earlier stuff with the red the redhead uh, uh, per- guy who's having his first flight mm-hmm. and his friend. I think there was one or two instances. I did read a uh, I did read the first few pages of the book. Like the way Dicky being a poet, um he occasionally he'll he'll, he'll go ahead and give you his quotation dialogue and sometimes he'll just say I said this. And some of the, the weakest dialogue I was seeing in the scripts of both versions of the script were stuff where Dickie didn't write out that dialogue. He just said, and then I said, like, well, when Muldron, like, uh, you know, when they go on the first flight, the flight that they get shot down, he shoots down a plane and he brags about it afterwards. Mm-hmm. And it, that always seemed like an odd way for him to act. But in the book he just kind of casually says like in a, in a line that's not quoted out he's just like i talked to the captain the captain said get off the horn like and it's just and it's a line in the prose
1: that see that's very interesting yeah because you're right in both of these versions but even more in the cohen one it almost reads like a top gun line it's almost like Haha, yeah you see that you see that cap and it's kind of like him being like this cocky cocky pilot or something and you're like that is that who this guy is but also you know that's a good scene uh, to look at between the two of them, right? Because both of both scripts have that exact scene with the redhead and the asshole guy that's trying to get into a fight with Muldrow. Yeah. And it's, it's a very quintessential let-me-show-you-that-I'm-tougher guy. He's supposed to be shorter than this other guy, and he shows that he's stronger by doing this, like, knuckle-grip thing. And it really is like a dick-measuring contest moment at the beginning of the movie to let you know, no, this guy's tougher than everybody else. And there's not any irony to it. He actually is. And he's been forged in, in the cold sort of of Alaska in a way that, you know, no other man can meet his toughness.
0: I, I thought at the very least, he needed to plant how strong he was and how much he's going to need to survive all the shit he's going to. But to your point that, I mean, I think they could do both. Um, you mentioned, I, you mentioned us going to format and that is a lot of what my notes are. I wanted to, do you, I want to get into your philosophies on screen format and why you think, why you write the way you do what your thought process is on it. So um going to the point I was making earlier about a lot of action, text blocks and how a lot of times dialogue seems to be the relief in scripts. Do you have anything, any mindset on like when you're writing about how long text blocks can be, uh, how much white space you need to put onto a page?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think it also has been an evolution. You know, I I just finished a script solo, but I also, you know, write with Dash a lot. And then I've also been writing something with my buddy Dave. So I think that... What happens is I think it's sort of a case-by-case case thing based on the story, you know, to some degree. Like, I think formatting should be a reflection of the type of story that you're telling. Like, I would do something different with, you know, more of a stately-paced drama than I would do with, like, more of a dark comedy or thriller or something like that because there could be some more playfulness actually in the formatting on the latter that might not make sense in the former. But in terms of the the white space of it all, I never try to go past three lines, really with action maybe four but i think that um what i the big thing for me at least over the last 2 to 3 years has been i do less and less camera direction writing. I think I, I still write imagistically, but I'm not doing, you know, again, the angles on, close on, we track over here, we pan over here, zoom in on this, pull out from this. I used to do a lot more of that type of writing. And I think that that's actually kind of more of how these scripts are written in, in yeah, a way, Definitely, definitely. Um, you know, which makes sense because it is, you know, a lot of the things that I like to write are more maybe not dialogue heavy, but they are about dynamics between characters. So a lot of the time you don't need to be quite as image driven in the, in the descriptions. Um, but in this script, I don't think that that approach would work at all because you really need to get the viewer to understand, you know, what we're seeing and get into these moments purely visually.
0: Why do you think camera directions and scripts throw people off? Is it just because they have to be thinking abstractly on two different levels?
1: I don't think that it's they throw them off. I think that there's maybe just a taste thing that's changed over time where there's maybe everybody's maybe it's like you know continually declining attention spans (laughs) or something where like maybe just efficiency has really become the name of the game more than anything so it's like how tightly can you write it you know and like you were even talking about like i i think what's so cool and has this confidence in the cohen's formatting for example right is that they'll do things that allow them to do something very efficiently, like skipping the character slug once we've established a voice. And they'll literally, between action lines, just do just the dialogue with no slug. But then they'll say, you know, something like, uh, Moldro gazes by itself and then they'll have like three lines of nothing and then they'll go to a new slug because they're almost showing you confidently like we want you to linger on this moment we're gonna linger on this and they use the white space to let you know the pacing which is great you're
0: getting to a point that you and i when we were working together as director editor constantly came to a point i constantly made was that the cohen's really their a lot of their careers based on a Hitchcock observation that the easiest way to show what a character is thinking without dialogue is to cut from a uh, character looking and then cut to what the character is looking at. Yeah. And when you visually show you 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 establish that that what they're looking, you know the audience knows they're looking at something, and then when you show a a point of view shot or just it doesn't even do a POV shot. It's just literally just like this is what they're thinking about.
1: Exactly. Well, that's also one of the things I did really love in the People's script that was not so present in the Cohen script is the way that they would use well and also they comment on it which I'm I'm 99% sure would be in the book too that like they literally say that you're lingering on Muldrow's expression, and we can't understand what the hell he's thinking. Like, he's really clear. You know, like, there's that one moment where he sees a nude Japanese woman showering, and he's looking at her, and they don't, and you know what I mean? And they're like, he's so stone cold that there's no way to perceive what his thoughts are. And they're kind of giving you that, um, which is interesting, because it's like, it's it's almost a, a... Oxymoronic, Because you're getting that moment. You're being told to look at what the character's looking at. Um, but you're also being told that you can't penetrate his thoughts by just looking at his face. So it's almost like a, a double standard. And I was also going to say, to just to finish that thought, what I love with the People's Version is they would dance between, you know... Muldrow as a teenager and a young man in Alaska, and then him in this survival mode in Japan, really elegantly, by like he 's looking at this and then we're matching back to this you know they would they would weave between these moments, kind of using your eye like he 's looking right and then you could almost feel the match cuts in the script mm-hmm. in a cool way, and I thought that was impressive because you know to be in a two page um scene of him in japan and they weave in two images literally two single lines about like a lynx hunting some other animal and then that suddenly like imbues this whole scene with something else you know which i think is really hard to pull off well
0: I know what I've been trying to do lately in the work is I've been trying to strip down. I realize that a lot of writing I've been doing tap dances with editorial stuff. And I've been trying to take editorial stuff out of it just because it's hard to picture. And it's one of those things that it doesn't matter just because you need to get the blueprint. What you were talking about earlier, the character relationships the her personal stuff, that's the stuff that should be on the page. And what's going to come up. Editorial is going to come up once the movie is made shot and in post, like that's where like you can come up with the, tap dancing I wanted to get to one of um, one of the ways I've been getting around the white space issues lately like the last few years I've been fascinated with Walter Hill's screenwriting uh, I was
1: going to bring up Walter Hill because there is you talk about, you know, a masculine kind of screenwriter and the tough guy screenwriting of like the 70s and 80s, which I kind of feel like these scripts in a weird way kind of fall into. There is a throwback thing, especially for the late 90s. These are not this is not a late 90s story, obviously, you know, and and I think Walter Hill has always been that that tough guy filmmaker. I love him for that. What's the what's the Western that he did about Jesse James, the long riders ever see that?
0: Yeah, yeah, is that the one where he casts the Three Sets of Brothers?
1: Yeah, that movie's great. I mean, he's just it's also great too because I mean, what wh- Anyway, sorry. You brought brought up Walter and I agree with that and that's No, a no, fun no. Comparison. You
0: you were going down an interesting road. My whole point was format. Is that have you how many Walter Hill he writes in this haiku style. He writes so many sentence fragments that like and he doesn't do line breaks, and like you, you tend to see when a shot doesn't break, but you see the beats moment to moment by shot. And like one of my favorites, I read of his is a draft he did of Alien, that like you just see every Alien, like you see the movie form out perfectly, and the same time, but we're talking like a, a line of action that's like one one word followed by the next line is two words, followed by the next line is one word. And it's
1: very non-fussy. It's non-fussy screenwriting. <laughs> yeah.
0: He seemed, uh, I found the quote, he got a lot of his style from, one of his favorite scripts that uh, he learned from was uh, Alexander Jacobs' draft of Point Blank. And um, the quote I have from him is, "He's uh, uh, he's been making, a. have been making a living for a he, as a screenwriter for maybe two or three years, and I had gotten to the point where I was satisfied with the standard form scripts were written in. They all just seemed to be a kind of sub-literary blueprint for shooting a picture and generally had no personal voice. Mine were tighter and terser than the average, but I was still working with the industry template and not too happy about it. Alex's script just knocked me out, not easy to do. It was both playable and literary, written in a whole different way than standard format, laconic, elliptical, suggestive rather than explicit, Bold in the implied editorial style, I thought Alexander's script was a perfect complement to the material. Hard, tough, and smart—my absolute ideas then.
1: I love that, and I and I love and I I love point blank too. I mean, I, I and I think Lee Marvin is a, such a badass in that movie. Well, it's,
0: but it's it's such an editorial movie, but like I can't imagine that on the page. It's like the Hiroshima mon script is mm-hmm. doesn't show it, that editorial style on it at all.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's a really good comparison, and I mean, I would love to read that script if you ever if you ever find that sixty seven version or if you have it.
0: I actually am reading from a screenplay office in Affilia and Beyond Tumblr, where they'll have a link to it. I'll send it to you. But. Yeah,
1: dude, send it to me. No, I love that, and, and I am trying to capture that more too. You know, where I think that there's a thin line right where you're doing something here, like with this, with you know um with to the white sea is it, it's like it's period and there's a lot of detail and they do will you know they'll take details and you'll and you know like early on when he's taping up the parachute or they explain the bread knife or there's like these kind of details about you know um you know his clothing and kind of like some of those textures but a lot of the time less is more i think especially when you have all this very heavy action kind of stuff you don't want to get lost in um, literary description, and I think in both of these scripts they did kind of a nice balance of not you know not getting bogged down in that.
0: Yeah, the the the, the trick on all this is like this is a great writer who wrote very few novels who has two amazing screenwriters, uh, pairs of screenwriters do an amazing job at talking er, at, at writing out a very nonverbal piece at the end of the day.
1: Yep, exactly. Well, and that's why I do kind of want to finish the book because I think it would be interesting to see. Yeah structurally where liberties were taken between the two of them, because I have a feeling that the Cohen's version is kind of a little bit more like they probably cut out. I think what they did is they're probably more, uh, faithful to the book in the sections that they chose but I think that they cut out more from it in the people's version I feel like they were trying to capture a lot of the book and that's why there's a lot of back and forth and there's things where you're like oh this probably reflection on his childhood or this hunting experience being folded into this feels like it probably was there
0: I think the model here, though, is that the Coens really have done very few adaptations. They And uh, they, they've rewritten other scripts, but, like, the two main literary adaptations they've done were No Country for Old Men and True Grit with Charles Portis. And both, they worked with writers who were very poetic, chiseled uh, prose stylists, which also plays with Dickey. And uh, I kind of wanted to go into a little of, um, so... Uh, Ethan Cohen, have you read any of his uh, published stuff? He has a short story collection called Gates of Eden, and he's written some poetry.
1: No, I know about it. I heard about Gates of Eden, but no, I haven't read that. And I would love
0: to. When you read these, there is like... Uh, Joel Cohen is doing the Macbeth adaptation right now right, and exactly. Ethan Cohen isn't it makes me wonder if Ethan is more the writer and Joel's more the visual guy but or if whether the personality distinction needs to be made but, I,
1: I've always thought that I mean I definitely think Ethan's more of you know I mean that's always been their, their balance and even though we all know that like they kind of co-directed a lot of those early films I mean Joel always got the directing credit Ethan usually got the writing credit they, right? they,
0: they used to make the big deal about the, the the directors guild made them separated but then they always said we were directing together and only recently have they or I guess I guess that's why i was weirded out by the macbeth thing because i thought they had like delineated like no one had a difference between roles at a certain point um yeah Yeah, i
1: don't know i just think from interviews and stuff i've seen and knowing joel's you know editorial background as well i feel like you know joel is more the directorial editorial mind and i think that ethan's more of a of a a straight screenwriter that's the impression i get but i don't really know
0: I think the dialogue in all these movies, I, in, in, in To the White sea, the unmade movie, but in No Country and in True Grit, comes from a very place of chiseled poetry. I have Joel's co-Ethan's uh, collection, The Drunken Driver Has the Right of Way. Um, do you want me to re- um, go to a random page and read an excerpt?
1: Yes, please.
0: Okay, we're going to page 32. Um, the title of this poem is I Love You Deeply, Darling. And let's just pick a random one. Uh, so if given that all me's would have my present attitude, these subjunctives are indi- indicative. I'll never change my mood.
1: <laughs> That's very elliptical, and like and dense as hell. Yeah. So I mean, I I think that that gives you an indicator right there of 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 his inclinations. Solo. When
0: I tried it earlier, I I found a page that like I was like that. That seems like a piece of Coen Brothers dialogue when I did Mm -hmm. it earlier.
1: Well, that's what I feel like they probably fell in. Like when you see, I think that's a good, uh, you know, again, specific comparison between the two drafts. When you see how much of that early the colonels, you know, when we're going to bring the fire down on him, we're going to put it up his asshole and we're going to put it in his wife's twat and we're going to bring it down through his fucking earlobe. Like they they kept almost all. All of that dialogue from the book, they kept like yeah. almost every yeah. word of it, whereas the People's Version, you know, very much whittled it down to a couple of the, the key kind of takeaways of it. And I think that I imagine that some of the way that Dickie writes language is what they probably fell in in love with as much as the the story itself, I feel like.
0: One passage I definitely tried to read was I tried to read the last few pages and I tried to compare the ends of the book, uh, ends of the two scripts versus the book. And the one version that worked more than anything was the Coen brothers. Like the Coen brothers, there's something about... I've had a, a spiel against the Coen brothers work in general that there's very few instances where like you, y- you've heard the accusation that they're cold filmmakers or they can tend to be mm-hmm. like, uh, sometimes they may be a little too cruel to their characters.
1: Yeah. They're not very sympathetic to their characters. They, they are cruel gods. And I do think that that is fair. A lot there's time. also this
0: really great article that from the fallen birth, uh, movies, death website where it, it, they take a, I forget. There's a monologue in the last chapter of Balan of, uh, 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 Buster Scruggs that the, the anthology movie on Netflix mm-hmm. there's a monologue in the last chapter of that that supposedly the t- entire Coen Brothers ethos so you should look at that article I wish I had it in front of me right now otherwise I wouldn't be pushing you there but my favorite Coen Brothers passages in throughout their filmography are the few times I feel like they really care about their characters and like the ones I always think of are like the very end of Raising Arizona where uh um uh, what's-his-face um, uh, the Nicolas Cage character imagines his future um, one of the reasons I rewatched inside and Davis the other night and one of the reasons I think that movie works despite being such a hard hard movie is that you get that opening scene with Oscar Isaacs playing a um, if I had wings, I think he starts out with I have if I had yeah. wings, yeah I think that's is that the song he starts out with anyway it's just so beautiful and it's just such as evocative of a inner soul he's singing throughout and there's something about the end of their version of to the to the White Sea because going back to my earlier worry structurally about why does this story not work when it's all been about Mulder not dying and then he dies? Mm-hmm. Well, the Coens nail it just because there's this great, beautiful metaphysical passage. Like there's that point of like the voiceover even has this meta moment where it's like this is how you can hear me talking to you because I'm in the ether. I'm in the metaphysic. I'm in this spiritual realm and that's how you're hearing me talk to you in the snow. And they, yeah,
1: exactly. I totally agree. And I was going to say, I think what's, what's so nice about that, that they do too, is like, here's this on page three is when I tell you this, just say it came from a voice in the wind, a voice without a voice, which doesn't make a sound. You can pick it up any, any time it snows or even just when the wind is from the north and that's the way you know and it's sort of like the movie has this nice book ending kind of coming to it is it sort of like there is like this kind of you know when you are part of nature and you are one with everything like there's even a sense that he's not so much he hates japanese in this story but he's not so much doing it vengefully You know, he's you know he even has that moment of respect with the former samurai, you know, the guy, you know, that he gets to drop on. um, The blind
0: man, that sequence in all versions is so cool.
1: That might be the best sequence in the movie, you know, but he has this kind of respect for him. And there's this, you know, and, and, and there's this sense that we kind of, you know, everything comes from dust, goes back to dust, we're all part of the universe, we're all forged in the same particles and kind of all of that, there is this sense that there is no, you know, beginning and end, which is why I think you could pull this movie off without him needing to survive
0: hmm.
1: i mean normally that would be very unsatisfying
0: <laughs> that well just the passage you read like that is just it's a, it's it's a really beautiful passage um
1: Yeah. But just to your point, I just remember because that's on page three and it literally is a book ending. You know what I mean? Because they just kind of weave that in and then you get this. And it's also what I think is so cool about probably the book in general, but just this story and a lot of, you know, if you look at Deliverance or you look at, um, you know, any kind of survival story, it's, it's, it's the juxtaposition of things that are so ugly with things that are so beautiful. You know, it's like there's some of the images and and him in nature and some of the um, these solitary moments he has where that are just incredibly poetic and beautiful. And then he's got like these ridiculously cutthroat violent moments that are kind of hard to stomach, you know.
0: I want to start winding down although I'm winding down yeah. with a very big topic to bite off. Um you and I've had these conversations before. I think you know how I feel about this, but I you, I hate the screenwriting format so goddamn much. Like I just think that, like, <sighs> the like the, I think there's a reason this movie hadn't gotten made even though it was expensive and everyone complains about the, the being expensive, but I I don't know if my unreadability translated to others, but I got a feeling it did. Like, I got oh, a feeling a yeah. lot of people didn't get through the script.
1: That it was too dense and that that was part of the reason it never made it. Is that what you mean?
0: I think so. I think I think th- I vi- Yeah.
1: That's probably right. You know what, when you said that too, though, it did remind me a little bit of like 1917, right? You know, I mean the, you can make a war film that is very like, it can be done, but I think you're probably right that at the time, especially given the, the, the uh,
0: 1917, you know, on a linear scare, you know, you know the time that's happening. You don't have to constantly concentrate between the difference between night and day. You don't have to look at a new scene wondering what's the setting because um, you know, um, filmmakers are going to granularly come out from a shot of, uh, like, the Coen Brothers version always ends with a fade out, fade up of when he finally goes to sleep, right? And right. it fades up, it's going to granularly come out from where is he at and then subjectively reveal the scene around him as he discovers it. And there's always going to be a part of your brain that has to figure that out. Whereas 1917, you just know we're, we're going straight through. We're, it's a real right. time. Yeah, it's real, real time.
1: time. Yeah. No, I think that that's probably true. But I, you know, the other thing, too, between the two, and this is a format thing, I, I guess my, my opinion is, yes, I think you're probably right. I do think that readabil- readability is, is really important. And there might have been something where, you know, it's hard to get enough momentum behind it because there's it's dense. But also... Uh, there's no slugs in the Cohen version, really. You know, to there speak really of, isn't.
0: there really which isn't. Which
1: makes it, which makes it tricky, and that's always something I've tried to do. Like Dash and I are actually working on this new thing, and we have a montage kind of format we'll do at three or four sections in the movie where we abandon slugs and we try to do more of a, you know, the the locations are existing within the action lines, and it's a tricky balance. You know, I've always tried to do that. Or if you see like, you know, um, Tony Gilroy scripts, you know, yeah. or or whatever, like it can be done really well but it's fucking intimidating and if you're like an, if you're like a development person and you're probably reading 20 scripts a week and then one shows up and it's a 100 page scroll without a single sc- scene slug in it that is a denser um, more intimidating read. So
0: Well, I'm, I'm buying off this. I want to know if you have any thoughts about if there's, are we going to stay with the screenwriting format forever, or are we going to change it? I think of things like the Fury Road script, which supposedly, there was a script on it, but, I mean, famously, they sold it, a highly visual movie with a storyboard script, and I think of, like, I read looked it up. Uh, this, the, the format that we currently go with is pretty consistent with there's been benchmarks where it's changed, like, um, I think a lot of people kind of point to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid as a big moment where screenwriting Mm -hmm. changed, but a lot of it has stayed the same since Thomas Inch in the like 1910s. And he was a rival of D.W. Griffith, who like all of his silence were being uh, shot off of like these one-page treatments. And Inch, like Griffith and him had a rivalry, but they didn't respect him as a director. Inch was a businessman who like started the assembly line. And he was the one that was like figured out a, pay, a movie need to be a page a minute. Oh, he had this frame phase that um, whenever he was happy with what exactly happened with details to department heads on the page of who's going to what and everything and exactly what was going to happen moment to moment, he would then stamp on it this thing that says, produce exactly as written. And screenplays have mostly stayed the same. Like you mentioned the slug line. The slug line is so bizarre because the key thing in the slug line is you need to tell if we're shooting in a studio or for a shooting on location exterior right. interior is the Well and it's, and
1: it's it lets you know right exactly that makes perfect sense and it's also i think what the reason it makes for so much more easy readability obviously is is it allows you to just have your eyes drift over the page without ever losing track of time of day or setting which if you don't have slugs it becomes you have to be reading more diligently it's almost like a you know um a test for the reader or something that's requiring to make sure that you're paying attention more. Isn't that more
0: familiarity with the format versus like, because the thing is, don't you remember how intimidating a script was when you first tried to read your very first screenplays?
1: Yeah. I mean, you're probably right. I think it's a familiarity thing, but I think even once you're familiar, I think that there are, you know, like back to your point, I think that there probably is something about the nature of this story that, you know, um, made it a denser read and might have had something to do with how much momentum could be built behind it, you know, or might've had a reason why it never made it to production, you know, those, those things. But that's interesting. And back to your larger question. I mean, that is a big question. I think that, you know, also I've talked to a friend, um, again, my buddy Dave, I mean, we were even talking about, you know, putting decks together and stuff. And I just had to do a deck for a pitch and, um,
0: Are decks more popular during COVID?
1: Probably. I mean, I think that, that that's interesting. I and mean, I think a decks, decks are more shareable, too. But like the decks that I do are very, very low to no text at all. Or, you know, I mean, literally maybe nothing. And so I think that maybe somewhat of a more graphic novel kind of, you know, pitch deck where there is a bit of a balance between the two. I could see that. And, you know, we both work for Malik. And I mean, he got all of his movies financed off a 15 page Word document of a treatment. But we're, most of us aren't going to pull that one off.
0: Yeah, but I mean a lot of that's also uh, uh, he's he's basing that off of uh, proof of career and proof of concept. Like he's made of course, so of
1: course. But I mean, I do think that it's also like back to your point. It's kind of about what's the appetite for reading sometimes because I think that 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 is the thing. Is it's like I I'm not sure that the screenplay is always the best way to put forward. Um, you know, to get somebody interested or get them to understand what the vibe of something is.
0: Do you think screenplays are designed for... Are they blueprints for a finished movie? Are they to sell financiers? Are they to get actors on board? Are they to just give you, a, your uh, department heads and your technicians, an idea of what you're going to do? Or are they just... Are they some kind of combination but imperfect combination of all those
1: I think I think it's a combination, but I do think the thing that stuck out to me most there is department heads and actors like to me it's it mostly is if if directing is anything, it's communicating a vision in a way that people can come along and and uh, you know help you you know have a unified consensus about where we're all going So if the script can do that, I think that that's that's kind of the number one. but now where I'm at, Career wise. I mean, absolutely. I look at, you know, the script is there to to get an actor. Because if it was purely a blueprint for me, I wonder maybe I would write certain things more differently. I think, you know, like when I wrote Inheritance or even with Stalker, I think that there is more of a blueprint kind of feel to it, versus now the last couple of years I've been kind of leaning away from that a little bit and not and feeling like it's really more about the the vision and the point of view of the writing than it is about having every image be clear on the page, you know what I mean? And I think Mm -hmm. so it, 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 to me, it's, it's a lot about, you know, clarity and getting people to come along with you. But, you know, like Tarantino always says, it's like the script should be something I would just, you know, like he did with once upon a time I could just publish and it would be great by
0: itself, you know, because I think, you know, that's the whole, I felt like a lot of, I've found a lot of my friends. I've occasionally gotten held up on it, but I know a lot of friends, just like the literary quality of a screenplay. Like, In theory, a script should never be published. It should. I
1: agree. I I was going to say, I don't agree with that point of view. I think that a script is not, it's an incomplete thing. You know, it's not. You know what I mean. But it. But at the same time, it needs to convey enough of the essence of what you're trying to do that people get on board with it and are excited by it and can you know rally around it. But it. It in it. In and of itself, it's yeah. It's inherently incomplete.
0: Mm. I mean, I may be just be coming from a place of constant dissatisfaction. Of like, I want my movies to be more visual or more literary, and I want like. Um, you know, I want more people to or more financiers to put more money into uh complex movies, and I'm mad at them for not what they spend their money on like yeah. the, the, when I was reading this, I kept thinking of the concept that like in theory a movie, if a movie a script reads like a movie in theory, you should be reading a page a minute if you're following the minute rule, and like these scripts definitely do not work that way
1: no they don't and I remember this 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 funny quote from um I think it's from, I can't remember. Uh, I think it's from Jim Jarmusch. And I think he was talking in some interview, like on a Criterion interview or something, about how silly he thought that, you know, that one minute a page rule was. Because it was just like, I could literally be like, you know, for example, with this, the bombing of Tokyo. And, uh, you know, from overhead, we witnessed the bombing of Tokyo. According to that logic, that should be... um, three seconds
0: you know on yeah the page. Would, it, would that be like one sixteenth of a page so right
1: exactly you know what I mean so I think that that logic is silly and I think what you're seeing more like I've been reading some you know blacklist scripts you know some breeze I'm always trying to like read some some new stuff to see what people are doing and I think people are challenging format a little bit and you see more but also I think they're doing it sometimes in a way where I feel like it's a bit of like a novelty you know what I mean where it's sort of like we're doing some fun formatting crazy wacky stuff I'm gonna put my margin over here and then I'm gonna center all this and
0: you're getting to my worry that the real thing of, a, of the novelty in a script is supposed to appeal to is not to a blueprint not to anything that's ever going to see a finished movie it's just the fucking agencies it's just
1: exactly the and it's this weird homogenized incestuous kind of system right where it's sort of like it's all you need – that's why people should be re- reading things that aren't screenplays too. You know what I mean? Because I, mean, I think that what happens is they're everybody's trying – and there's also like the spec sale game in the development world. I have a lot of critical opinions about it and I think a, there's a reason a lot of those movies don't make it to production. They're made to be sexy to read and appealing and that kind of game in and of itself – is its own end game it's not meant to necessarily always have these things ramped to production because we know that even like on that you know the blacklist there's a hundred scripts there and probably eight of them will get made you know and those are supposed to be like the up you know the 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 creme de la creme of what was made you know written last year
0: well speaking of the blacklist you get it always comes with the perfect example i bring up all the time i don't remember what year it was almost like 2008 but do you remember that angelina Jolie movie salt yes do you remember when it was on the black uh, blacklist sure. when I, uh, when that when uh, the character was still a man and like I remember the first two pages were like the funnest thing uh, one of the funnest things I've ever read. and like yeah. it just opened with like um dialogue scene where these two people bickered repeating the same line over and over for two pages and it was such a fun opening and that movie is I'm surprised you remembered it. It's a very forgettable movie.
1: It is, yeah, and I like Philip Noyce. I mean, he's made some good movies, but that movie yeah, is... Of co- is oh, yeah, of course, you know, I, I
0: don't want to... Milton Noyce is a great filmmaker, I don't want
1: to... Yeah, yeah, but no, but yeah, that movie's very forgettable because I think there's also, you know, the fact of the matter is that we... Uh, there is always a a, a a component of this game that's magic, and I think that that's what's fun, but I think that a lot of what happens in development is it's it's, you know, we're working off of what is data driven and what is familiar and you know trying to I think that also what happens is everybody tries to recreate lightning in the bottle and you know you'll see like some new trend and then everybody hops on that bandwagon and it's sort of like that's how things get overly saturated and stories get again more homogenous and less interesting because it's almost like everybody's looking over you know at their neighboring desks and being like oh well what are they doing should I do something more like that and then suddenly everybody's kind of trying to do the same thing
0: no, I think you nailed it. Um, do you have any last thoughts?
1: No, this was great, and uh, thanks again. And I, it was really fun to be able to you know, you know again read these things, and I think that you know this might. I think this is a great thing to do on a podcast because I think sadly this movie never will be made. I would be very surprised if it ever was. But... I am really,
0: I am really curious. Like based on the Vertigo movies, what else, like I would love for them to make this, and I would love for them to make a very. Um, Commercially accessible version of this just because there's so much hard edge inherently built into this sc- into the subject So I
1: think that that's yeah And I do think that that could happen like we were saying about there is that there is still that appetite for those stories And I think if you do I think there is a good way to do it. I just think that because you said it is quite dense and um, it it uh, it is not an affordable movie to make it's like it, it the likelihood of it making i can see why it never quite made it there even even with all of these amazingly talented people involved and all these attachments and all these things you know there's also I, I i i don't know maybe the revenant killed it a little bit now too i don't know like would brad want to go do that after like there's just something about where well the
0: cohen's have said like said that he's too old for this so they'd have to find somebody else by this point. well
1: now they would him. i mean the guy is supposed to be like 22 or something
0: yeah so and but it it, i mean there's there's a i did i did have these moments reading the script where it was just like i have my own coen brothers movie right here that very few people are aware of there's that but it's not an actualized coen brothers movie so yeah tyler savage thank you so much for being on the podcast you will definitely be back anytime
1: it's always a pleasure thanks for having me shane
0: thanks bud